So I have a quiz for you. Not really a quiz, a question. So, what is the most important thing on the Buddhist path? Hmm? Compassion. Compassion. Bingo. Patience. What was that one? Clarity. Clarity. Detachment. Detachment. Equanimity. Equanimity. Sangha. Sangha. Paying attention. Mm -hmm. <coughs> what else? It's a big. Path to the release of suffering. Mm -hmm. Self love. Yeah. Self love. Mm -hmm. Kindness. Kindness. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Presence. Discovery. Presence. Discovery. Great brotherhood. Great brotherhood. <laughs> well. <laughs> quite a broad net. Interesting to see what we, you know, how we, what lens we look through and how that um, affects our perception or perspective. And also just to see what's important to us. Each come, each one of you comes to, comes here for, out of different reasons, different causes, different needs, different desires, different aspirations and hopes. And it's a pretty big path. It's a pretty big vehicle. So there are many teachings for many different things that have been spoken to. You know, different qualities of mind, different facets of heart, different capacities of freedom and awakening. So whenever I'm reflecting on the teaching, I try always to take a big view and understand what's the context, what's the, what's the perspective, what's, how does this fit in with everything else, how does this relate to life, what's the, what's the underlying intention around a teaching, a practice, a tool, a methodology, so the one, one thing the Buddha often said was, to what end? To what end is this practice? To what end is this understanding? To what end is this heart opening? So if we ask the Buddha what was the most important thing, he may say something quite different than what was just said. Or not. Most likely he would have given a list, because he liked, he liked lists, perhaps. Or he would have said, the, the reason I teach is for the liberation of the heart, for the sure heart's release, which is love. So, if you think of the teaching and the practice of Buddhism as a jewel, it's multifaceted and depending on how, where you approach that and the angle of the light, you will see different facets. 
And one of the facets of the jewel is the qualities we're exploring this month in the Monday night class of what he referred to as the divine abidings, these abodes of the heart that uh, speak to the potential and the capacity of the human heart to love, to care, to appreciate, and to live with balance. Qualities of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And they're one of the beautiful uh, offerings of this teaching for those of you who've practiced and those of you who haven't. They're beautiful uh, practices, they're beautiful qualities, they're beautiful capacities, potentials of our being that, of course, is a lifelong pursuit. We don't do a few techniques and then nail it and then we move on to something else. (laughs) It's not like that. The heart is always opening and tenderizing and growing and understanding. So for me, as as I mentioned here before in this class, that I'm particularly interested in the how the the in, in this tradition in the insight meditation tradition this this you could say there's two primary vehicles there's the vehicle of awareness and the vehicle of mindfulness and the vehicle of the heart so awareness and the heart two two vast domains of our life and I'm interested in the intersection how they interweave how they mutually support and uh, grow one another because that's really what we want to be living with is living with an awake heart, a kind attention, a compassionate presence, a loving awareness. And then we can, when we have those qualities robust and developed then we have great skill in how to meet anything. If you have a lot of presence and a lot of kindness, you will be able to navigate your inner and your outer life with a lot more grace and a lot more skill, a lot more ease. doesn't mean it's going to be easy, it just means you've got greater capacity, which is why in... uh, Buddhist tradition, they're emphasized a lot. The qualities of metta, of karuna, of compassion, of kindness, and this quality of mindfulness, mindful attention, curious, uh, attending to what's here, to what's true. So you might reflect for yourself. What's my relationship to these things? Kindness, compassion. Do I care? Is it interesting? Do I spend a lot of time thinking about it? Is it something I'm curious about? How does it show up in your life? And always an interesting question is, what is the limit? What is the range? What is the, the outer frontier of my heart's reach? Right? And usually our heart's reach is 
you know, relatively local. You know, we eat local and uh, heart's a bit local. You know, it's friends and family, you know, usually, that we extend our hearts to really sincerely and deeply. And then, you know, it goes a little outwards here and there, but it's, it's sort of usually there's some containment to it. Part natural part of being human being, being a tribal, part of our tribal ancestry. And the invitation of these teachings are to uh, see if you can extend, to see where the heart contracts, where the hearts close, where we fear, where we shut down, where we separate, where we polarize, where we think of them as the other. Because part of the reason we do that, partly because it's painful. When we create any boundary and separation, we suffer. And of course, so do the people around us who we've pushed out of our hearts. It's a great line from Neem Karoli Baba, a great Indian teacher, who said, no matter how much you don't like somebody, never push them out of your heart. So what would it be like to have a big enough heart where even the people we didn't like could hang out in there? It doesn't mean we go for tea with them, but they, we, don't, we don't shut down the heart's expansiveness. So I'm going to say a few things tonight specifically about the quality of compassion, which is one of the facets of the heart. The heart that's turned towards the pain of another, primarily. A lot of opportunity for practicing, for feeling, and this quality of care, concern. There's a lot of suffering and a lot of pain in the world. And those we know and distant and global and environmental and all kinds of tremendous challenges here. And I talked not so long about compassion uh, in this class. I didn't realize I was going to be part of this series on the Brahma Viharas, these four qualities. So I'm going to try not to repeat myself. <laughs> so the place I, so when I, when I want to talk about more tonight is the quality of fierce compassion. And talk about compassion in those places where we're challenged, where it's difficult for us to extend, where we separate in different ways. So I am going to share a story that some of you have heard before, but I think it's a beautiful story. I often start my compassion talks with this story because I think it's a beautiful example of this, what I'm talking about, of when the, the quality of attention and kindness are present and how when we meet someone else's vulnerability it becomes an exquisite compassionate action. So this is about a midnight taxi cab driver who is just about to end his shift in the middle of the night and pulls up to a house and uh, was waiting outside, honks the horn couple times, nobody comes out, and instead of uh, driving off, he decides to go and knock on the door. And as he does, uh, he hears an, uh, an elderly, frail voice that says, just a minute, and he hears something being dragged across the floor. And after a long pause, the door opens, and a small woman in her 90s uh, stands before him. And she's wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it. 
as if no one had lived in it for years. Sorry, the apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets, no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks on the counters. Would you carry my bag out to the car? The lady asked. I took the suitcase to the cab and then I returned to assist the woman. She took my arms and we walked slowly towards the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness and I said, oh, it's nothing. I just treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. We get in the cab, she gives me an address and asks quickly, could you drive through downtown on the way? And I say, well, it's not the shortest route. And she says, no worries, I'm not in a hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rear view mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she says in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have long. I quietly reach over the, and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next several hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she'd once worked as an elevator operator, had me pull up, pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to stop in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness. As the first hint of the, the sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired now, let's go. So we drove to the address she'd given, small convalescent home-like building. Two orderlies came out, grabbed the trunk, grabbed the suitcase from the trunk of the car, put the woman in the wheelchair. She asked, how much do I owe you? Oh, nothing, I said. But you have to make a living, she answered. Eh, there's always other passengers. And without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held onto me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver, or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take the run, or had honked once and driven away? On a quick review, I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. So I always choke up every time I read that. It's a beautiful story. Simple, ordinary. And of course it touches all the people we've been with in that situation, who've died, gone to hospice, right? uh, parents or family, friends. And what I love is, is the simplicity. He just wasn't any grandiose act of compassion, he just was present and responsive. Right? So compassion has this responsive heart in it. Right? That sort of has this, innately within it, it has a quality of attention, has the quality of empathy, where we can, we're present enough to we get, some, we get somebody, we get where they're at, and because of that empathy, we have an attuned attention that's responsive. If, if, the, if the heart is open, there's a care, there's a leaning in, there's a responding to, the, in this case, the vulnerability of this old woman in her last days. So, sometimes in meditation, 
And as we go deep into the path, deep into our journey, we can plumb the depths of that quality of compassion. Sometimes you may feel it in meditation. You may feel a quietness, a stillness, and in that stillness there's a, there's a receptivity or a, or a tenderness or a responsiveness. So I just taught a retreat last week here up the hill, and uh, one of the, the themes was this, this flow of awareness and compassion, and I quoted this um, one of my favorite lines from Chan Buddhism, uh, where the sixth Zen patriarch says, do not say that awareness and kindness are separate. One arises with the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Without awareness, how can you be present enough to display and feel and offer kindness. Kindness is the expression of that awareness. So as we become more aware, more awake, what happens is the heart opens. It's an interesting thing that I've seen in myself and I've seen in innumerable people, how as we become less wrapped up in ourselves, less caught up in our mind and our our reactivities, there's more capacity to see what's around us, to be responsive, to care. So this is from um, Chogyam Trungpa, who puts it this way. He says, when you awaken your heart, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that the heart is empty. If you search the awakened heart, there is nothing but tenderness. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness and compassion. This experience of compassion is unconditioned. It, because, it occurs because your heart is completely exposed. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. This tender heart of the warrior. So sometimes, you know, quite often, I think, the qualities of the heart are considered a little, you know, mushy, kind of wimpy and um, not very powerful. We might, not, we, we might not see too many world leaders displaying compassion. It doesn't do too well in, you know, election year. You've got to be strong and all that. So we have these very misguided notions of what strength is, and I partly want to talk about that tonight. That it takes a certain courage to grow this quality, because to grow this quality means you have to be comfortable with hanging out with pain. You have to be comfortable turning into difficulty, hanging out with distress and anxiety and fear and loneliness and hatred and all kinds of yummy other things called life, called being a parent, called being a loving human being, right? We encounter all these challenging things. So this is from the poet Hafiz. He says, Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, 
my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. So what would it be to let our challenges cut a little deeper? Which means not to be masochistically, you know, causing ourselves pain, but to actually not be so quick to reach for the ice cream in the, you know, or the the TV or the, you know, the highlights of the game yesterday or whatever it was that you lean to to escape from things cutting you deep, not to cut you deep to hurt, but to cut, cut so you open, so you feel that incredible vulnerable tenderness that called being human really is, as opposed to the busy, numb place that we're often in, where we're too busy and too mm, distracted to notice what it's like to be in this impressionable, sensitive place. This is from Dan Goldman. I think this is probably from his book on emotional intelligence, which was groundbreaking some years ago. The act of compassion begins with full attention, just as rapport does. You have to really see the person. If you see the person, then naturally empathy arises. If you tune into the other person, you feel with them. If empathy arises, and if that person is in dire need, then empathic concern can come. You want to help them. And then that begins a compassionate act. So I'd say that compassion begins with attention. And sometimes I get this question, or this question a lot, like what, what's following my breath got to do with anything? Look at the suffering in the world and the species extinction. How is following my breath going to help anything and anybody? Right? Well, first of all, it helps us with ourselves. It helps us to actually be a homo sapien, someone, you know, someone who's present, right, as opposed to a human doing, right, or a homo shopian, or whatever else we get <laughs> lost in, you know. So I want you to think about the times where um, compassion is not so easy. You know, if someone falls down in front of you or, you know, a loved one is, is in pain, as you know, our loved ones can often be, not so difficult to feel care, to feel concern, to feel kindness, hopefully. Um, but what about those places where it's harder? Right? Think about the, the, the territory, the growth edge of your heart, right? that border zone, you know, that that requires some uncomfortable hanging out with. So I'm going to speak to a few of those uncomfortable zones. You know, we don't have to look very far, right? Usually we don't don't need to look any further than ourselves. And the difficult states we get into that we don't like that we judge, that we think, I shouldn't be getting into now because I'm a meditator, because I've meditated for a long time, or because I'm spiritual, I don't have hatred anymore, or whatever the story is. So, so easy to get 
into, into very painful habitual states that we make doubly worse by reacting, by cursing, by rejecting, right? fuel on the fire. So where do you do that to yourself? Where, where's, the, where's the limits in your own compassion or understanding for yourself? So what would be one place that would be interesting to look at that you, that you feel limited by in that kind relationship to yourself? So I had one of my Monday night um, events uh, I'm often stuck in traffic, like probably half of you on the 101, wondering if I'm going to get on time to be present. And um, this time my, my, the battery died in my car as I was doing an errand in San Rafael, which was, um, you know, shit happens, right? So not the end of the world. But, um, uh, you know, a little anxiety provoking whether I'd whether it could start again and whether AAA would come in time or whether, you know, the usual stories. And then the, the thought came, well, you should have replaced your battery earlier, shouldn't you? Didn't this happen only two months ago? And, you know, yada, 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 yada. Thank you. Very helpful. Not really. Go bother somebody else. Mr. Critic. So I have several friends who have young uh, babies, um, and this you know talk about the both the capacity for the heart and also the challenge of the heart. So they're mostly extremely sleep deprived. Um, one particular couple has a colicky baby, and so they're extremely sleep deprived. And you know they both have this profound love, and also you know murderous rage at times, <laughs> as any human being would who hadn't slept well for many, many, many weeks, right? And so, oh, so there's, there's the limit. How do I love when I'm completely and utterly depleted and exhausted? How do I keep my heart open in that situation? It's very of human, of human situations, the challenge of parenting with sick children, and you're completely exhausted and depleted. How do you not shut down? How do you... Be kind to yourself when you're struggling with that. How do you um, keep a warm heart to your own pain and know that it's hard? So, um, similarly, when we get busy, you know, I think busyness is one of the curse of our times, right? We might have enough money but not enough time. And so we get busy. We get busy cramming things in because it's New Year, so you're cramming an extra few things, right? Because you know you should be exercising more, or meditating more, or doing yoga more, or all of the above. <coughs> we should, for every New Year's resolution, take a few things away off the table, don't you think? Just like, we don't need to add more stuff. So anyhow, there was a great study that I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the last time I was here. Um, I think it was a theological seminary, theological uh, graduate program, and, the, the, and they were doing some research on compassion, and half the class was told they had to leave the class 
at the end of class I had to go across the other side of campus and get to another lecture and it was very important that they were right on time and they, they kept the students back so they'd have to rush across the campus. And, um, and little did they know that the, 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 the research folks had planted a person to fall down in front of them and, and, and be, act really hurt as, the, as they were racing across campus to their, their next class. And, um, and then the other group was told to leave class, get across campus, but don't be in a hurry, just you know, take your time. And there was a staggering amount of people, percentage, who didn't stop as they uh, left class. You know, and these are you know, theology students, you know, cultivating, you know, <laughs> those noble qualities. And yet the pressure to be on time, I forget what the data was, 83% or something, it was really high. People didn't stop to help someone who's clearly in pain in front of them. And there was a much higher percentage from the other class who did. So to see how just being busy, just being in a rush, being too wrapped up in ourselves and our own agenda or self-importance, or just, you know, just being busy. And again, not to judge ourselves, to see, oh, to see what impact different things have on the heart. I know when I'm stressed and busy, the heart gets a little closed. Good to look at the causes for the stress that cause that, because it's a painful state to be in. So I think one of the, the, the bigger pl- blocks for, for this quality of compassion, this what the Buddha called the quivering of the heart in response to another's, another's pain, is we don't want to hang out with the pain. Because it's painful, funnily enough. You know. How many people are like, yeah, great, I want to hang out with pain. I'd like to sit with that person who's really suffering. I mean, maybe some of you do this for a living as a, as a nurse or a physician or a healthcare worker, social worker, therapist. So we, we recoil. Our, our heart's limited by the, our own capacity to feel pain. With compassion, we feel the pain of another, which is why it's challenging to open to in, at times. And of course, how the, the practice always works is when we're willing to do our own work here, then we're willing, we're, we have the capacity to do our work out there. So what we're not able to open to in ourselves, fear, loss, anxiety, grief, shame, depression, deficiency, loneliness, whatever it is, right? when, we, when, we, when we don't have that capacity, when we've not trained ourselves to, to meet that with a loving presence, it's harder to be with others who are going through the same stuff because we, we feel the reverberation of our own stuff and our own lack of ease with that. It's kind of doubly painful. So I was recently sitting with someone who's dying um, a few days ago, and um, it's a very, very tender, tender moment when you're sitting with someone, as you know, at that stage of life, and there's not really a lot to say, you know. There's not, you know, it's going to get better, 
You know, there's not this, that the things that we usually comfort each other with, not so available. It's going to be okay. Well, I don't actually know that for sure. You know, might be true. So we're sitting with the unknown, we're sitting with uncertainty, we're sitting with fear, we're sitting with loss. And in those moments, I really appreciate my practice of just being able to hang out with all of that and say what I say, but mostly just hanging out in presence, with a loving presence. And I find when, when I get out of the way, when the self gets out of the way, what's there is love. And I said to this person who's a student of mine, who I don't know that well, I said, I love you. And she said, no, you don't. <laughs> I said, this is what's here. There's just love. You know? And it's a beautiful thing to share. You know? But it requires a certain undefendedness. So a colleague of mine was telling me this beautiful story. She's an oncology physician, psychiatrist. And uh, she was sitting bedside with a dear friend of hers who was long, painful um, cancer condition that was, that was in a palliative care ward. And she was sitting with this same juxtaposition of feeling really wanting to be there for her friend and also in her professional role as the oncology uh, psychiatrist. And at the same time, feeling tremendous grief and loss. And of course, what's challenging about loss is it tunes us into every other loss that we have had and not yet healed or resolved. And um, I could really feel her practice that she that she'd cultivate that ability to both tend to her own pain, but also not let it get in the way of simply being present for her friend who is really needing her. So this is a story that um, a friend of mine, Alexis, wrote. Um, we were teaching a retreat together, and he had to leave early to attend something on the East Coast. And so he wrote this letter to the, for us to read to the people on retreat. He said, I wanted to share with you something that happened this evening. On our way back from the Baltimore airport, a deer stepped in front of the car I was driving. For the next 30 minutes, I kneeled quietly in the nightlit meadow as she struggled to stand over and over again, but collapsing each time. I found myself whispering, oh, my friend, I am so sorry. Take all the time you need. There's no rush. Take all the time you need. I held love in my heart for the deer and love in my heart for myself. When the time came, I kneeled by her and placed my hand on her wounded body as she slowly parted. Tears fell, tears of openness, of allowing, of sorrow, sacred space. What I really wanted to say is that life is precious. And fragile. And again, what I'm appreciating in that, in the way he's writing, is his capacity to hang out with, you know, very painful <laughs> when you hit an animal um, and you're hanging out with it as I've done. You see the light go out in their eyes. 
It's very tender. And so, turning our kind attention to our own struggles, turning our kind attention to the struggles of another, we grow this capacity by not avoiding, by not running away, by not uh, judging. And when we feel the limit of our capacity, then we turn our compassion to ourselves. Because any limit is painful. Any constriction is painful. Sometimes we get challenged by the intensity of situations that are so harrowing that we just, you know, we startle and we shut down. So, and that's particularly true when there's the, the pain is a more violent, caused by violence. So there's this interesting um, para, um, teaching in, in the text that the Buddha is, it's called the simile of the saw. And um, he's giving this teaching to, the, to his monks and nuns and he's talking about the capacity, you know, the, the depth that this, this uh, quality can go to. And he said, um, <clears throat> even if people are sawing you limb from limb, you know, sawing off your arms and sawing off your legs, you should still be able to dwell with this heart of compassion. Right? It's kind of a tall order. I, I, would, I don't suggest practicing this one at home. <laughs> <laughs> Unless somebody is, you know, and then you've got no choice, but, you know. Um, so, the, as an example of our limitations, so when the Dalai Lama was giving teachings in New York, after, not long after 9-11, he got booed for talking about extending compassion to both the victims and the perpetrators. So the heart, in its boundless capacity, doesn't make the divide. Our mind does. Our mind says, this is right, this is wrong, these people are good people, these people are bad people, these people are in my heart, these people never will be. And religions have mm, touted that. And he's taking a deeper position. Can I love even those that cause suffering, because they cause suffering because they're suffering. Just like all these amazing stories you hear of uh, Tibetan monks and nuns who've been jailed and imprisoned for decades by Chinese and tortured and mistreated, and understand when the power of the heart, understand the, the, the power of karma, and they understand that these abuses and their jailers and their tormentors are causing themselves tremendous suffering by acting out in such harmful ways. And so they're able to keep their hearts open. That's where the, the, the wisdom and, and compassion come together. So I thought about that recently when those uh, when the the children were killed in the, in Afghanistan, the, one of the most atrocious things I've heard in recent times. And 150 school children were killed um, as part of the ongoing conflict 
in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and and my heart actually went out to the to the soldiers because to have to live with oneself, you know, they were probably conscripted as young boys, and to have to live with oneself that you took innocent children's lives for the rest of your life, I doubt they'll last a lifetime. You know, just like the innumerable veterans that come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, who it's, it's intolerable to live with the pain of that uh, conflict. So I wanted to read something from um, a Dharma teacher and an ex-Vietnam vet who speaks to this and, and the beautiful capacity of the, of the practice to bring about healing of these tremendous challenges. He writes, it had been eight years since my return from Vietnam when I first attended my first Vipassana retreat. At least twice a week for all those years, I'd sustained the same recurring nightmares common to many combat veterans, dreaming I was back there, facing the same dangers, witnessing the same incalculable suffering, waking suddenly alert, sweating, scared. At the retreat, the nightmares did not occur during sleep. They filled the mind's eye during the day, sittings, walking meditations at meals, horrific wartime flashes, and flashbacks were superimposed over a quiet redwood grove at the retreat center. I began to realize as I practiced that the mind was gradually yielding up memories so terrifying, so life-denying, and so spiritually eroding that I had ceased to be consciously aware, consciously aware that I was still carrying them around. What also arose at the retreat for the first time was a deep sense of compassion for my past and my present self, compassion for the idealistic young would-be physician forced to witness the most unspeakable obscenities of which humankind is capable and for the haunted veteran who could not let go of memories he could not acknowledge he carried. Since that first retreat, the power of compassion has stayed with me. So again, to think about where are the limits of your compassion? Where do you, where does the heart close? Where does, where is a courageous heart required? So, Maybe think about the people you don't like. Maybe think about the people who, who uh, have a different, different political persuasion than you. For example, your favorite politician when they come on the TV. Um, how's the heart? Stay open. I remember when during Obama's inauguration and seeing um, Dick Cheney in a wheelchair forget what he was in the wheelchair for, but something. Uh, not my favorite political um, uh, figure and um, responsible for, for many things, including us going into Iraq and uh, false pretenses. And um, I remember f- uh, playing with this, this quality of the heart, feeling the quality of the heart of here's someone that Politically, I'm, you know, very, have very different views from, and yet as a human being who's suffering, can we extend our hearts in that way? Doesn't mean we agree with their political views. Doesn't mean we stop uh, fighting for our own. 
but can we not create the same division and polarity that, 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 that we see in the world that creates the very things that we're protesting against? So I want to read a story. This is um, from, uh, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure where Jack got this story from, but it's a beautiful story of the compassionate heart. And one of the ways that we cultivate compassion for those that we're challenged by is by having forgiveness. When the heart's closed and the heart's unforgiving, there's no, there's no room for any connection. Compassion arises through connection, care, and responsiveness. They're the three key qualities. We connect with the person who's in pain, there's a care, there's a desire to relieve that suffering, and the responsiveness is an actual action. So compassion moves us to, to, to act in some way, small or large. So I've always loved this story um, that speaks to, again, this idea of turning into that which is most challenging, that's most causing our heart to shut down, keeping our presence open so we can metabolize and transform that experience. A young boy, 14 years old, wanted to get into a gang. The way that he proved himself to enter the gang was to shoot somebody. It was an initiation rite. He shot this kid he didn't know. He was apprehended, brought to trial, and at the end of the trial, convicted. Just before he's taken away in handcuffs, the mother of the boy whose shot stands up, looks him in the eye and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. And then she sits down. After being in prison for a year or so, the boy is visited by the mother, that same mother, and he's kind of frightened. She says, I've just got to talk with you. They have a little bit of conversation, and as she leaves, she says, do you need anything, like cigarettes, little money? She starts to visit him. She goes every few months, and over the course of three or four years, she starts visiting him more regularly, talking to him. When he's about to get out, of, when he's about to get out at the age of 17 or 18, she asks, what are you going to do when you get out? And he says, I have no idea. I've got no family, no nothing. And she says, well, I've got a friend who has a little factory. Maybe I can help you get a job. So she arranges that with the parole officer. Then she asks, where are you going to stay? And he says, I don't know where I'm going. And she says, well, I have a spare room in my house where you can stay. So he comes and stays in the spare room, takes the job. And after about six months, she says, I really need to talk with you. Come into the living room, sit down, and we'll talk. She looks at him and says, remember that day in court when you were convicted of murdering my son for no reason at all to get into your gang? And I stood up and said, I'm going to kill you. Yes, ma'am. I'll never forget that day, he says. And she looks back and says, well, I have. You see, I didn't want a boy who could kill in cold blood like that to continue to exist in this world. So I set about visiting you, bringing you presents, bringing you things and taking care of you. And now I let you come into my house and get, and you get you a job and a place to live because I don't have anybody anymore. My son is gone and he was the only person that I was living with. I set about changing you and you're not that same person anymore. But I don't have anybody, and I don't want to know, and I want to know if you'd like to stay here. And the story goes on as she takes him in 
as one of her own. It's a pretty unusual and incredible story of the heart's capacity to resolve its own pain through compassion, through forgiveness. But there's lots of beautiful stories of personal and more global responses to challenges. I'm sure you have your own of ways that you've overcome things or people have responded to you. I think our world survives. You know, we we both kill each other, but we also survive by taking care of each other. If we didn't have this, these qualities of the heart, right, we really we wouldn't survive as a species. It's a beautiful line in. Um, there's a book called The Compassionate Life. And he's writing about all the various evolutionary biological um, forces that have that are the part of our makeup that we share with so many other mammals. And he's writing about Darwin's observations of human nature. And in it he comments that um, Darwin, only in the in the origin of is the origin of man. Species. Oh, species, species. Darwin makes the, the reference to the survival of the fittest three times, but mentions the word love about 96 times. And the, the implication is that we, that we survived because it's the, it's the survival of the kindest, not the fittest. That we, that we survived as these vulnerable species you know, because we learn to live together, we learn to collaborate, we learn to care for each other, we learn to take care of each other. So that's in our DNA, DNA, fortunately. And, and we also have these counterforces that are more egocentric and more fearful and more um, tribal. And our practice is, to, is partly transforming our those hardwired, fearful, egoic responses. So maybe one of your practices this week is to um, reflect on someone who's out of your heart. Reflect on someone you pushed out of your heart. Someone who um, is challenging for you to open to. Might be a friend, might be a former lover, partner, someone who has difficulty with you. Right? We, tend to, we tend to sort of return the favor when someone does that. It's called conflict. And um, so I know an old dear friend of mine once gave me this instruction. She said, whenever I, whenever I feel that animosity towards someone, I always move towards them. I always get to know them. Because once I get to know them, once I connect with them, I, I, I see the humanness and whatever I'd built up in my mind that had made me more polarized starts to soften. I'm not saying you do that, but it's something interesting to play with. Sometimes I'll give the, give the person I'm having a hard time with a gift, like I'll bring them flowers or something. 
just as a way of bridging that divide. But you know what I what what's beautiful about the quality of compassion is it's it's also something very simple and ordinary, just like that story of the taxi driver. And so So what would it be like to let yourself be kind? What would it be like to choose kindness rather than the first knee-jerk response? Because we often have a choice point. We see someone, we meet someone, they say something, and there's, you know, with, with awareness, with mindfulness, we can, there's more of a space to, to feel before we react. And there's often a key choice point. I can react or I can meet that with a little more kindness, a little more presence. <clears throat> so I'm going to close with a bedtime story, and then you can all go home to bed. <laughs> so, which is, for some of you would be a great relief. <clears throat> and out of compassion, I'm ending the talk early. Um, so this is um, from one of my favorite poets, Naomi Nye. And um, she's at the airport. Albuquerque, a place I've spent many, many, many hours. And she writes, After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement on the intercom, If anybody in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days, doesn't one? Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older Palestinian woman in full traditional dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's the problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly in Arabic. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been cancelled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical surgery the next day. I said, no, 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 we're fine. You'll just get there late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son. I spoke with him in English. I told him I'd stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her southwest dial. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad. And he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling us a about life, answering questions. She'd pulled out a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Loretto. We were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There's no better cookies. And then the airline broke out free beverages from huge coolers and two little girls from our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice and lemonade. And they were covered with powdered sugar. And I noticed now my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked round that gate of late and weary ones and I thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, 
had seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So let's just sit for a moment and just um, sense into your heart. Sense into your innate capacity to be kind and caring. Making intention to to lead with a kind heart. Okay, folks, so thank you for your attention. And as I said, the next few weeks, um, there will be uh, other teachers speaking about these qualities. And I just want to make one connection, correction to the announcement I made about the, uh, the climate change rally is not happening outside Jerry Brown's house, which he'll be very happy about. <laughs> it's happening on 14th and Broadway, and there's apparently about eight, ten thousand people planned to show up, and many Buddhist teachers will be attending. Okay, thank you. Enjoy. Take care. Please stack the chairs, turn right as you leave Spirit Rock, and be happy or something. Patricia about it.
was like really one of it was this really good fit, right? Because I have spaces and I have society and I have right I was sitting in front of people and even though my eyes were closed, I'm like very aware of that, you know. And, and then at the same time it's just a smell, right? Like my rational mind is like you know, what it's supposed to be wrong. Like what could possibly right happen with this but I did, so I had to just I guess you do the best you can. Yeah. You're always doing the best you can, right? And sometimes that's ignorance, right? Like, you know, I, mean, I think we do all kinds of things that probably hurt things in, in, in you know, with the intention of good, you know, and, and you know, definitely you know, need wisdom and kindness, you know, kind of being enough, right? Just that's a good example where it seems like it's being kind, but it's, you know, who's needs being, who's being taken care of? I mean, maybe the deer, you know, maybe the, in his last moments, maybe there was something reassuring about his presence, right. and you know, yeah. once, once, once 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. I mean, it's it's comfort. It's comforting. Like li life is comforting. There's different sides to stories, and yeah, yeah. There's no answer. It's just like oh, yeah, right. Life is messy and. That's right. No, I didn't come to you to help with your Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's a good it's a good puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good night. Okay, take care. Good night. That's your colleague. Yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.